Because um, we tend to traditionally look only at the, at the sort of headline macro numbers in trade, but in fact, um, the story that's now ongoing, uh, given the, um, uh, the, the various tension on the, on the trade front, um, is really a story that um, affects very deeply value chains. Um, so the, the production of inputs that then are being reused um, uh, in, uh, in exports that China does, but that also European and um, uh, American companies uh, do around the world. And so, so in that sense, uh, looking only at the macro numbers would be too narrow. And so um, we, we want to, to shed light on the deep value chains um, that, that matter for trade nowadays, and um, especially with a focus on China. And, and who would be best to, uh, to present and, and write on this topic? Uh, other than our own senior fellow, Alicia Garcia Herrero. Alicia um, is based in, in Hong Kong. Um, she made it out. Uh, um, and, uh, and so she's based in Hong Kong and, and obviously um, also works um, for Natixis in Hong Kong, but um, is, I think, a, a very well-known uh, fellow and, and researcher on China. Um, her presentation will be followed by discussion uh, by Seamus Grimes, um, who is an emeritus professor at the Whitaker Institute for Innovation and Societal Change at the National University of Ireland. And I believe he's already online. He will uh, speak then on the screen. Uh, Seamus, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you, yeah. Uh, very well. Thank you for joining. And um, uh, Margit Molnar um, will join, is joining us physically. She's from the OECD and heads the um, China desk at the OECD and has been to Beijing in 2015-16 actually um, at the um, finance ministry during the G20 presidency of China. So knows China also very much from the inside. Without much further ado, Alicia, uh, why don't you kick us off? And, uh, and Simus, I, I think it would be, if you could mute your mic, um, that would be helpful. Thanks. Yes, okay. Thanks. Okay, first of all, thank you for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm very impressed by the number of people who are interested in value chains in the sense that it used to be a, kind of a nerdy topic. I'm sorry, Seamus, because he's been working on this for all his life. But I, basically, not many macroeconomists care too much. But now we have to care. And I'm going to show you a few things why this is very important. Um, not only to uh, understand uh, structural transformation in our industry here in Europe, in my opinion, but also uh, to understand perhaps the genesis of the trade war. I'm not, uh, I can't prove any causality, uh, but I'm just saying, I do think that the numbers I'm showing you now, which by the way are OECD data and that are readily available. Um, so, sorry, sorry. Okay. Is it me? Is it you or is it? I hope not. It doesn't look like it. Okay. Um, could, Simos, could you mute your mic? Would that be feasible? Maybe muted. Okay. okay. I'm not going to move just in case it's me, which is very hard for me. So I'm going to be very, very still. No, no, please move. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I meant to say that that I can't prove any causality, but I do think that, uh, and I have actually uh, colleagues and, and, pre and previous co-authors who've worked with input-output data, looking in detail uh, as to the increasing dependence of the U.S. 
export structure from China. So what I'm going to show you is basically stuff that people in policy uh, uh, environments have been working on, especially in the US. So, so I'm going to focus on Europe, though, here. There's a lot to say, as you see, many, many issues. I'm going to focus on those who talk about Europe, basically three and four, for the benefit of time. I wanted to make a long list there. Frankly, I think I'm going to turn off this, if it's me, and, and speak up. Uh, let me see if, if I turn it off, how it sounds. It's just that I don't think he can hear me. Well, anyway, I go on uh, for, the, for the sake of time and, and efficiency. So I did make a long list here, and there's many, many graphs. I'm not going to stop up each of them, but this is going to be research that we're going to publish in a policy note uh, at Bruegel. So for those interested, say, in the value chain in Asia, you already know that it will be there. But I'm going to focus on Europe-China relations. Um, so I need a minute to explain you the key concepts for those who are not very much involved in value chain uh, jargon. Uh, the key concepts, oh my God, it's like, uh, it looks like Hong Kong today. I can't speak, I can't show you the, the presentation, but I can go on, uh, I can guarantee. So if, if I don't see the slides, I'm going to try to explain you what we do. We use input-output data, OECD or uh, famous input-output data, which is then actually, uh, to be very frank, um, we have data up to 2016, you know this very well, 16 to 18 is basically an extrapolation of the, those numbers by the IMF. So not everything I'm going to show you is, is, is crystal clear and true today, because there is the last two years are extrapolated. So. Um, no slides either. No, but Seamus has to mute himself, and we try to explain to him how to mute Okay, so, but this is more important because it's going to be hard without slides. Yeah, okay. I know. Um, um, okay, so within that uh, database, there is uh, something called global value added for every country's exports. So we work with total exports. Okay, here. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's like. Yes, as I said, I'm ready for this and even more after Hong Kong. So let's move this thing. Um, Here you go. I'm going to, um, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, uh, I'm going to just tell you, this is probably the one and only positive uh, graph I'm going to show in Europe, so I'm going to stop here. 63% of global exports are Europeans. It so happens that a lot is intra-European. Yeah, it's among ourselves, but still, it's a nice figure. I'll show you also that we have the largest value chain on earth with Europeans, because a lot is intra-European. I'm not going to talk about the value. It's great to be rich, as we say. I'm going to talk about the change, yeah, which is what matters, at least for our kids and our future generations. So bear with me with that wonderful graph. Uh, I'm going to move to more worrisome graphs in a minute. So that you understand the concept I'm going to use very quickly, this is China's total exports, okay? This is gross data, everybody can check. China's total exports is 2.2 trillion US dollar. I'm only going to focus on what I call, so the domestic value added is very big, 87%, and the foreign value added, i.e. the imports of intermediate goods, because all of this is basically, I mean, uh, intermediate goods, is 13% of those. And the 32% there, which you see DVX, is the domestic value of exports, i.e. China's exports of intermediate goods to the rest of the world for them to 
re-export for them to use maybe all the way to final goods and then re-export. So we're in the world of basically intermediate goods. That's what I'm going to talk about. It so happens that generally intermediate goods are produced if you have enough value added to do so. So they are a very interesting part of gross exports and, and that's going to be my focus. The first idea is that, no worries, it's not only Europe, because this is my key point, that uh, Europe's integration in the global value chain is shrinking. This is going to be my key point. But frankly, it's shrinking, every, shrinking every there's, everywhere since 2008, since the global financial crisis. That's the first idea. We're already deglobalized in, in terms of value chain. But, but of course, I'm not generalizing this concept elsewhere. I'm only focusing on this. You see that in, in China's uh, share of global exports, but very marginally. So you already can hint at the idea that I'm going to propose here, or show with the, the numbers we have, that China
supports much more than the rest of Asia. That's why we are increasingly linked to China. I hope that you can follow me because it's a bit complex. And I prefer to show fewer graphs, but make sure that the concept is conveyed. So, so I'm going to skip Asia. There's a lot about uh, this very interesting idea that actually Southeast Asia, ASEAN, is still integrating. This is different from Europe. So just when the, the report is out, you will see this kind of table. And just to help you read it, it says, for example, South Korea. Is it South Korea integration in the global value chain? No, reducing. Regionally, reducing. Sub-region within North Asia, reducing. With China, reducing. So very clearly, Korea is becoming less integrated with the world. Now. When I look in detail, which is another report we produce, what this really means is increasingly asymmetric. So yes, it's the linking mostly because its exports of intermediate goods are collapsing. But it's importing more intermediate goods from China. So there's that idea of asymmetry, okay? And we do that in a different report. But I just want you to read this stuff so that you... So, so basically, the regional value chain Reducing, but the foreign value added, reducing even more. So let me go to Europe, which is the key. And I know that we have a lot of people speaking, so I'm going to be brief, hopefully. Uh, the very same graph I showed you for Germany is here uh, for the whole EU. Now, this concept for many Europeans could be anathema because I'm treating uh, Germany's exports into France as global value chain, meaning I'm here looking at every country individually. I will show you in a minute intra-region. So that you, okay? So you see that the same problem appears. We are reducing, reducing our integration in the global value chain. I'm not here to explain you how important it is to be integrated in the value chain because there's a lot of papers out there showing you know, how much uh, uh, jobs are created, wealth uh, effects, etc. So I just leave it up to you to believe whether this is good or not. I'm not making that kind of argument, but in principle, it should not be a good thing. Here, the, the, the column in the middle shows regional value chain, which is actually reducing, so this is like a sum, if you look at those dots, is actually shrinking nearly as fast as our integration with the world. So what I'm trying to say is that the reason why we are delinking is regional, regional integration. Our wonderful single market, and we could talk about this later, Guntram knows much more than me, I don't know how well it works, but the point is, in the data, we're not seeing more integration. And this starts uh, quite clearly, uh, especially it accelerates uh, during the sovereign uh, crisis in Europe, global financial crisis, sovereign crisis, there is a massive reduction. So I guess countries look for other opportunities, China, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that reduces our trade integration. At, at the level of the value chain. By the way, we have data about gross, gross exports. I don't even need to use this complicated data to show you that even gross exports in Europe at the regional level are shrinking. So this is no news, should be no news for anybody. So, so basically, now you see the elephant in the room is here. Integration with the rest of the world is not shrinking, hardly shrinking, that point there, very small. So who is this? Who is this? Who are we? we how, who are we integrating with? Obviously China. And this is the next thing I want to show. Um, this is uh, 
let me move directly. This is intra-EU uh, exports, as I mentioned, uh, gross numbers, massively reducing. Uh, they, are, they are picking up. The, the lowest level was during the, the, our sovereign financial crisis. So you can guess that, you know, lots happened during that crisis, and not all of it was financial. Yeah? Many things happened in terms of our real integration. So this is China, our integration with China, EU28. Increasing, that uh, blue dot shows it very clearly. In an asymmetric way for China's favor. And I mean, I know favor sounds a little bit negative, uh, sorry if I say that, but again, based on the liter existing literature on the benefits of value chains, it's of course more beneficial when you export your intermediate goods than when you import your intermediate goods. So I'm basing my judgment on that literature. Okay, we can discuss whether this is good or not, but I'm just taking the general view. So basically, this is from China's perspective. DVX increases for China, meaning it exports more and more intermediate goods to us. And foreign value added from China's perspective is that it does not import as many intermediate goods from us as it used to. That's it, that's the story. The change makes it more and more asymmetric. It was already asymmetric if you look at the level of the bar, but it's becoming more and more asymmetric. And that's the story. I mean, I could stop here basically because this is what I want to show you. Uh, this is true that uh, for nearly every country in Europe, there is nine countries, Bulgaria, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany. I showed Germany before. Germany is not integrating more with China. Why? Because it's not importing more. You remember the graph? The, the, in, the imports of intermediate goods are falling. But it's not integrating, I mean, it's, it's not integrating, but it's not exporting more. It's exporting even less. So the net effect is still negative. It's just that it is like Asia. Basically, Germany behaves like Asia, if, if I may say. It's integrating less, which is strange compared to everybody else, nearly everybody else, but it's not becoming more, more symmetric. It's increasingly asymmetric, but at least you are delinking if you think that this is a bad thing. Most countries are increasingly dependent. So uh, this is the comparison. Basically, uh, I'm going to move very fast. This, this, are, this emoji uh, express my the, the literature opinion about this asymmetry. Basically, if you are, if you are Austria is like Germany. Uh, basically, less exports but also less imports, yeah? So delinking, but more asymmetric. So the net effect is negative for Austria. That's why we put this, you know, uh, this sad face there. Germany, yeah, it's both, sorry, uh, Austria, the difference is, is, is delinking, but the increase of uh, foreign value added is increasing. So basically, it's, um, the difference with Germany is that Germany, everything is falling. So, that, so some countries are increasing their dependence both sides. That's what I'm trying to say. But most of them are asymmetric. So let me uh, give you one example. Value chain with China and the UK in, in, in decreasing. Foreign value from China increasing. So importing more and more goods from China. So more asymmetric. So that's why we have that negative side. Yeah. Intermediate goods, always intermediate goods, yeah. Uh, okay, so a little bit better for Southeast Asia or for Asia because there's this idea that many are like just delinking, like Germany, like just delinking. Um, so US, US is the same as Europe but less. 
in a nutshell. I don't have time to go through all of these graphs, but it's the same, but less. Um, th that's the key difference, okay? Uh, but you see there, share of China and US total imports uh, in, of intermediate goods massively increasing. So, it, it, the, the, so if you think about, and we did this analysis in a previous seminar here, what is the US really, where are the import ties from the US? Consumer goods still like pending, 190 billion, let's wait to, you know. But the intermediate goods are all there. They've already put these 25% tariffs, and I, frankly speaking, I can imagine that they may put even more because they want to stop this. But we are suffering more than them. I'm not saying we should do the same. I'm just saying that my analysis only shows that we're more dependent than the US on China. We're increasingly dependent, basically, and in an asymmetric way. And the US, by the way, this shows in our analysis that not only is it losing market share in China, but everywhere in the world. So this is the idea which we have developed here with Russia, Latin America. We had seminars here looking at third market competition with China. So it's not only your own value, it's like third market competition that the US is obviously losing as well. So lots of data, lots of, uh, I think I'm going to move to the conclusions. One very important thing, because I think it's a lesson for Europe, what is North Asia doing? I showed you the case of Korea, dramatic, Japan. What are they doing? They're moving their, uh, their production to Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia is becoming more and more integrated, which is something that I hardly could show you because of the lack of time. So it's becoming like, I mean, I wouldn't say the new Europe, it, this sounds exaggerated, but I'm saying they're moving into more regional integration, ASEAN. And North Asia is going there. If you look at the flow of FDI, which we have here, it's very obvious. So it, I mean, I'm not here to recommend anything. I'm sure you're experts of you know, policy makers and so on, but I'm just saying these guys are going where the integration is happening because in a way they are giving up on their own integration and i think that's basically what foreign direct investment into asean massively increasing taiwan japan south korea and that's basically their answer if i may say uh, of course many other things happening to this question so you see there the change of sharing global exports increasing in many of these countries um I, I will stop here. I just go to the conclusion. So we, we rank for the benefit of you know any policymaker trying to think where we should be negotiating and you know uh, either bilateral investment agreements to make it easier or free trade agreements. So we rank these countries depending on what you produce, um, labor uh, intensive or capital intensive, and you have there like an obvious winner for labor intensive Vietnam and capital-intensive Thailand. And then you can see the list there and, you know, how, there you go, uh, how we rank. I mean, the previous one shows you what are the things we use to run the countries. This is beyond what I want to say. Final word. So, very simple. Uh, the key here for, for my presentation is, first, let's not uh, talk about maybe in the future there will be deglobalization. Trade-wise, it's already happening. It's been happening for a while before the trade war. I guess the trade war can only accelerate this process. That's number one. Number two, we're not insulated in Europe. Actually, we're at the core of this uh, trade deglobalization or trade deregionalization because a lot of what's happening is intra-European. And interestingly, we are in, in, in a world of delinkage. Think about it, how hard it is. We are, in many cases, still increasing our linkages with China. 
value chain-wise. In an asymmetric way, meaning importing more, exporting less intermediate goods. That's basically the, the picture I want to show you. Uh, uh, this is happening in North Asia as well, but North Asia is reacting by finding neighborhood, if I may say. It doesn't have to be ASEAN for us, who knows what it has to be. But I think the, the key policy message here is we need to react, in, not necessarily in, in the way the US has, which might indeed be a reaction to what I just showed you, but maybe trying to find those, those synergies in neighborhood countries or you know, trying to create that new integration which uh, should create value and uh, so basically a boost of uh, a, a new flying geese, using the Japanese term. A new flying geese where you go elsewhere, you, you know, uh, for direct investment, you create your new uh, value chain. And because it, it so happens that it's, or, or you push for your single market and you basically go back to uh, profiting from the one you had. I mean, you have these two options. But I think that what I just wanted to say is a warning signal, basically, that, that our value chain is shrinking. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Alicia. Thank, thanks a lot, Alicia. You you overwhelmed us a little bit with charts this morning, but uh, but I think the key uh, the key message is clear. That um, uh, I think that the, the, the key message that I took at least away is that in general we see globally that um, value chains are getting getting shorter again. And I think there is a sort of if you look at global trade statistics, you see that in a sense globalization has peaked. Right? I mean, you see that exports in percent of GDP tend to fall globally, right? Um, and um, I think it's also true, what you said is very, very true, that within the EU, uh, we've seen that um, uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, um, trade um, was very much redirected from uh, within the EU to extra EU. I mean, you can see, especially German, Germany's trade, um, uh, that um, you know, before the crisis, I think more than 55, 60% or so of the exports went to the EU. Now we are below 50%, right? And so, so, so there's a clear reshuffling of, of the trade patterns um, away from the single market for a variety of reasons towards, uh, towards global markets. Um, and then, of course, the, the third, and that was perhaps the new point here, is that China in particular um, seems to reduce its imports of intermediate goods uh, while it increases its exports of, uh, of intermediate goods. So in other words, um, you can perhaps interpret this also as China uh, you know, becoming much more sophisticated economy with, with a lot more uh, intermediate goods that can be used in all kinds of productions and actually being able to, to sell that. And that has led also to an asymmetric adjustment uh, with the EU, or with Germany in particular, but with the EU where Germany gets, um, uh, in a sense, more of its intermediate goods now from China than it traditionally used to, but it's not compensating by exporting more intermediate goods to China as, as it used to do. So these are the numbers, so to speak, um, uh, and, the, and the main data that you show. Um, I guess the, the big question is what to make out of it, and you know, is it a problem? Do we think it's a problem? Um, uh, is it something that uh, policymakers can do anything about it? Um, and uh, and uh, you know what what should we be uh, thinking about in terms of policy response, but also in terms of um, corporate uh, corporate responses? And um, uh, to discuss these issues, we have um, now uh, Simus uh, Grimes um, uh, online. I hope he's um, 
He's listening, and I don't know if you. Uh, can... Yes, very good. Um, so, so perhaps uh, Simus, you can uh, you can kick us off with a discussion, and then uh, we have Margit, and then we have a general discussion. Thanks for joining this morning. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it's a uh, it's a very interesting um, overall picture. Okay, so that's no, we can't hear you now. That's of course, um, you know, we could hear we could hear you all along, but now when you speak, we can't hear you. <laughs> that's. that's right. uh, <laughs> Technology. Um, um, Maybe we turn on then. I hope you didn't push any button. Now, uh, uh, finally, finding the mute button <laughs> that would have been. Not the right one. Um, okay, so. Uh, so, so, uh, so, Matilda, I think we have to first go to the other discussion. I don't know what's what's happened. Yeah, it sounds like he's muted now. Huh? So, um, no, no, I think he hears us. He he knows that we do. Yeah, I think he can hear us. <laughs> Okay, so so we do first the other. Uh, it seems that he muted from his side. Well, yeah, but yes. but he started speaking and then he muted. Yeah, he basically pressed some button. Maybe you should tell him that he needs for you. Okay, so you need to unmute. Apparently, you pressed uh, Simos. Apparently, you pressed some button somewhere uh, and muted yourself, um, which you tried before, but before it didn't work. Now it worked apparently. Yeah. So it must have been muted on your end. Uh, perhaps you can try to unmute. And we turn now, I'm sorry uh, for this uh, technical problem, we turn now to um, uh, Margit uh, Molnar for, for your discussion. Um, you, uh, you, of course, have looked at this data from the OECD point of view, and um, perhaps you can, can kick us off in the discussion. I'm sorry for this technical hiccup. Please. Mike, Mike for market. It should be on, yes. It should be on. Don't don't push anything because um, then you <laughs> then you will unmute it in the end. No, it's not muted. Get my mic. Okay. I go in trouble. Yes. discuss this very um, interesting and very important topic um, today um, of this interesting paper and I have read through all these uh, uh, NatExis releases uh, which I enjoyed a lot. 
because they're very illuminating of uh, very different aspects. <laughs> I would like to confirm some of these facts that you have found and also add uh, some of the thoughts. Um, if I... Um, so the story I would like to tell you uh, here is uh, to confirm that China's backward integration um, into global value chains has become weaker. What we call black backward integration is um, how much foreign uh, inputs a country is using for its exports. But forward integration became stronger. Forward integration is something what we call uh, when you um, provide intermediate inputs to other countries' exports. So um, we can see uh, this trend is common not only um, in China, but also for many OECD countries. And uh, this can be related to, as uh, we have already alluded to before, China's climbing up uh, the value chain and China's becoming an increasingly important market for foreign enterprises, for foreign affiliates, not just a production platform, but um, more and more of a, mar a market. And we also see how uh, these multinationals are changing and how this change may be related to these um, changing global value chain uh, data that we have seen. And uh, what is the role for China in uh, who is establishing its value chains and becoming an increasingly important overseas investor in shaping these trends? Um, just to confirm that we have already heard, so China's backwards integration into global value chains uh, has fallen for about 10 percentage points over the past decade. However, China is not alone in this trend. Uh, we can see many other economies uh, whose backward integration into global value chains has fallen by about the same extent. For instance, uh, India, Israel, Malaysia. Um, and in Korea, it's even more. It's about 12 percentage points. And in the US and Japan, it was four percentage points. Um, on the other hand, we can also see some countries that are now more tightly integrated. Uh, Belgium is one of them. Uh, Mexico, the Philippines, and Tunisia are some examples. And here, here we can see a much a larger range of countries uh, to illustrate uh, this phenomenon. So the little red triangles are uh, showing 2005 data and uh, 2016 is the blue bars. So when we compare uh, when 2005 was higher and, and the blue bar is lower, so the red triangle is above the blue bar, it means that uh, backward integration into global value chains has fallen. And I circle China so that uh, you see where China stands in terms of like foreign value added as a percentage of exports relative to other countries. You can see that uh, Luxembourg is uh, the highest among all OECD countries. Another um, confirmation of the facts and, and some more um, interesting developments is uh, strengthening forward integration of China with global value chains. That is, China is providing an increasing <coughs> share of uh, intermediate inputs, as Alicia has uh, outlined, uh, for other countries' exports. Mm -hmm. So China's forward integration with global value chains is increasing. However, China is not alone <coughs> in this trend. The United Kingdom, <coughs> Germany, 
France, Italy, and a number of smaller European countries also show similar trends. Um, we also see the, at the other um, extreme, other countries uh, where this forward integration with global value chain is weakening. Those are Japan, India, Vietnam, and Thailand. And here we can see all these countries, and we can see all these trends that um, were just mentioned. And again, China is uh, circled with the red line, and we can see that uh, China is providing more inputs into other countries' exports. China is not alone. There are many other countries who are also providing more inputs into other countries' exports. However, what is even more interesting to know that how dependent are countries on China's inputs for their exports? It's not just China is not alone with providing more inputs to other countries' exports, but how much of other countries' inputs are they providing? So most countries, except Ireland and Luxembourg, increase China's share in their foreign value added embedded in exports. But for Mexico, Korea, Indonesia, and Japan, China provides about a fifth of foreign value added into their exports, while for the US and Australia, about a sixth. And we can see all this in the next chart. Oh, sorry. Yes, here we can see that uh, this is China's value added in exports of intermediate products. Oh, sorry, no, this first, this one. Yeah, this was, yeah. Uh, first this one. So, um, this is what we have uh, just uh, discussed. So, China's value added as a percentage of total foreign value added. So, how important China is uh, as a foreign uh, intermediate inputs provider? compared to other foreign intermediate inputs providers. And we can see uh, what we just discussed that for uh, Mexico, Korea, Indonesia, Japan, US, Australia, China is a very important um, intermediate you know, goods provider for the exports of these countries. And one step further, um, China also increased its inputs into intermediate exports of most countries and most economies, I would say, because here, um, number one is Chinese Taipei, and uh, that's how we call Taiwan at the OECD, for, to be politically correct. And uh, Korea, Australia, um, Chile have over one-third. So um, China increased its inputs into intermediate exports of uh, these countries to the extent of over one-third uh, for these economies. And for other countries like Malaysia, Japan, New Zealand, and Thailand, around a quarter. So this is also um, some illustration of what we already heard from Malaysia. And uh, why are these happening? So uh, try to find some explanation of uh, uh, these trends of uh, the weakening backward integration and strengthening forward integration in the global value chains. And uh, one uh, possible explanation is that as China is uh, climbing up the value chain, it can produce an increasingly large number of uh, intermediate uh, inputs at competitive prices. Actually, this is a similar trend that we have seen when China entered the WTO. It became competitive in a, in a very wide range of products. We have, we have done such uh, analysis at that time. and. In, in almost uh, in, in some sectors, almost all products at even the six-digit uh, category 
they became uh, competitive. It's also because of the size of the country that explains this. So probably that's what might be happening uh, in the case of uh, intermediates right now. Uh, one example is, for instance, uh, integrated circuits, uh, which is uh, one of the two largest uh, import products of China, uh, together with oil. Sometimes it becomes, uh, if oil prices are not very high, then um, integrated circuits are number one. So this is one of the uh, major intermediate imports because China at this moment cannot produce all what it needs, especially all the higher value added integrated circuits that is what it needs. But integrated circuit production uh, has uh, soared in uh, recent years and also its uh, exports. And another reason might be that as um, China's incomes are rising, it's becoming an increasingly attractive market. So foreign firms use it not only as an assembly platform, but uh, benefit uh, from it as, a, uh, as an attractive market. And this is what we can see, that uh, foreign-funded enterprises in China, uh, they have uh, decreased their, uh, not decreased, but they slowed their exports compared to earlier years. So the um, growth rate of exports has decreased. And also, together with it, processing trade has decreased. So processing trade used to be the most important trade in China. More than half of exports and imports were done through this trade. And uh, this was done mainly by foreign enterprises. But now uh, this is somehow breaking down. And foreign enterprises, uh, although they imports are not shrinking that much, uh, and uh, meaning that um, they mainly consider China as, a, as an important market. And China is still an attractive destination for FDI, although what we can see in the right-hand side chart is that um, FDI is now increasingly going into services and not that much to manufacturing. Uh, there is another trend that can explain all these uh, uh, changes in global value chain, which is uh, the changes in foreign multinationals operations. And uh, here I took the example of uh, Japanese firms, but we can do the same because data are available for uh, Germany, for uh, the US, and um, also for Korea. I think uh, those are the only countries who have uh, <laughs> data available uh, which can, um, where we can trace these trends. So uh, what we can see from um, the, the Japanese firm's operations is that sales are increasingly localized in Asia. That means that Japanese firms are uh, not using Asian countries mainly as a production platform to export uh, either back to Japan or to a third country, but uh, mainly to sell it locally. So this share um, increased from 73% in 2008 to 79% in 2017. And uh, we can see a similar trend in the sourcing of inputs. So the sourcing of inputs uh, in Asia also increased from 63% to 75% uh, during the same period. So here all the data referred to 2008 and 2017. And we can also see a lower reliance of, uh, on inputs from Japan. So uh, these companies are more uh, sourcing their inputs from uh, local um, firms, well, not necessarily local firms, but locally and less from Japan. And another important and interesting trend is that uh, the sourcing of inputs is increasingly localized also in Europe. So we can see the same trends in the sourcing uh, in Asia and in Europe, but we can see less reliance for 
inputs for Japan. Okay, this is also the same, but what, what, what I should have said, the but for is what is coming now, is that um, um, Europe is increasingly used as a production platform to export to Asia, North America, and Japan. So also these shares, the share of uh, the sales of uh, Japanese affiliates in Asia is uh, increasingly going to other Asian countries to North America and to Japan. This is somehow not well explaining the trends that we have heard, but it's maybe because this is part of the story. This is not the full story. So Japanese affiliates are only one, but uh, this, is, uh, well, this is also something that uh, that is happening. And uh, probably if we complement it with the US and the German affiliates, then we can have a fuller picture. And um, as we have already heard, um, um, some, including Japanese multinationals' activities have already peaked in China uh, in 2015. So since 2015, both the number of firms and uh, um, sales uh, are decreasing. And um, this is not true for ASEAN. Again, we can confirm it from the Japanese affiliate data. As in ASEAN, the number of firms and also sales are increasing by Japanese affiliates. And another factor that can also play a role, probably not so much uh, in the historical data, but more from now on, is uh, China's emergence as a, as a global investor. Um, we are um, working on a research paper, hopefully it will be out in a few months, on China's ODI, Overseas Direct Investment, and its impact on the domestic economy. And uh, um, we have uh, reclassified official data, which don't follow the international classification, where according to our new uh, reclassified data, we can show that um, ODI, in terms of ODI stock, the accumulated overseas direct investment by Chinese companies have reached about 5% of the global total. And this is about the same as Japan. So if you imagine that Japan started investing in the 1970s, and by this is 2017 data, so, uh, and China in just about 10 years reached about the same stock as Japan in manufacturing, that, that's, a, uh, that's a very impressive growth. And especially in 2007, it was below 1%. So China is becoming an increasingly important investor uh, overseas and in manufacturing in particular. Uh, but what makes China very unique compared to other countries uh, that did the same before, especially Japan, is that China's ODI is concentrated in resource-based manufacturing industries, not so much in uh, uh, electronics or car manufacturing, which are uh, very sliceable, and that's how global value chains have had so many uh, different countries linked to it. And probably that can be uh, one reason for a further uh, disintegration of uh, global value chains, given that the investment where China's companies are, are um, the sectors where China's companies are investing are not so much sliceable than the ones that others were investing before. Thank you very much. And in a sense, the numbers um, are confirmed, um, so which is good news. So that, that's already good news. Um, and thanks also for complementing that picture uh, with the FDI data um, and showing the increasing um, importance of Chinese FDI abroad, um, uh, including in Asia, but also in Europe. And you know, the shift of Europe as, a, if I saw correctly, more as a 
production assembly uh, place than it used to be, which I thought was an interesting new point. So is it Chinese companies that use um, Europe as a production place or? Japanese. Japanese. It was only for the it's, Japanese. It's the Japanese. Yeah. Unfortunately, China doesn't publish these data for its uh, foreign affiliates, so we, we can't trace anything like that. All right. Okay, so let's see whether we now uh, can get Simus, uh, Simus on the line. Um, otherwise, we have to... No, it still doesn't work. Through the phone now, come on. It doesn't work, I don't think it will. Yeah. Uh, Hello, we are trying to connect him with the phone because he. Can you speak? Hello? Yeah. Speak yeah. on the phone. Speak on the phone. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Please, Simos. Uh, uh, okay. People are hearing you, so you can speak, and they're, okay. they're, they're seeing you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, um, I didn't hear uh, much of the uh, previous presentation. But I, I did, what I did hear was um, uh, a statement about um, integrated circuits. Uh, in China, uh, that, that the production had been soaring and thus, um, you know, significant export. And um, in fact, I just I just returned from China and I gave a presentation on um, inter, inter, uh, on semiconductor uh, production in China. And uh, I think the picture is somewhat different than than, than uh, what the stage is, uh, in the sense that. Um, uh, overall, something like 15% of uh, global global chip production happens in China, and of that 15%, uh, it's about 50/50 uh, in terms of foreign and local companies. So, in fact, um, China's uh, progress in the semiconductor sector is quite modest uh, to date. And uh, in fact, if you look at it in more detail. Uh, the progress that has been made is mainly in lower-level uh, devices. Uh, China, China's main corporations import uh, most of their uh, high-end semiconductors from outside of China. Um, in, in my overall um, comment, really, on what I've heard so far, really, I, I would be inclined to put forward... Um, the following interpretation of what's been happening with uh, China's role in global value chains. Um, I would say the first 10 years after um, integration in the, into the World Trade Organization, uh, that um, the emphasis was very much on uh, offshoring, uh, outsourcing uh, activities by multinational companies to China. And uh, one of the most significant elements of that was um, the, the relocation of a lot of um, ICT activity from Taiwan to mainland China. But, um, but much, much of this activity, though, did not involve, it was mainly assembly activity. Uh, so, in other words, most of the innovation and the R&D activity was happening outside of China. 
I would say more recently, since the COVID crisis, I, I, I say there, has, there have been changes in the sense that China's domestic market has become much more significant. And there's uh, many, many multinational companies now who are either suppliers or are key brand companies in China have, um, have set up operations in China. And I think that what's been happening with the global value chains, what has been presented here, is more this second stage of development. I'm not so sure it's um, a negative thing for other parts of, the, of, of um, the world. I think it's more to do with the fact that um, the, the, the developed regions still retain much of the control of the supply chains, the high-end supply chains in China. And that's, uh, much of the developed world are still feeding in intellectual property into China for the, the final assembly of products. So um, that would be my, my overall view of, of the, in terms of the high-tech sector in China. Thank, thank you. That was um, that was very clear. Uh, so it's really um, uh, the, the more important size of China on the one hand, and then the moving up on the value chain. If I see correctly, that you see as the main explanations for for this change in the in the value chain. And you don't think it's a it's a reason for worry, if I understand you correctly. I mean, it's just a normal economic phenomenon. Um, so, so I didn't hear that very very clearly. Can you just repeat that again? Well, I mean, just from an from an EU uh, policymaker's point of view, do you do you think uh, this is actually actually a source of worry, or do you think it's um, uh, it's just a normal evolution of uh, of China moving up the value chain? Yeah. What, what, what I was saying, see, I've been I have been interviewing um, foreign foreign technology companies in Shanghai for the last ten years. And uh, I just recently returned from um, a visit where I interviewed some, some companies. What, what's been happening really is that um, it is clear that, 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 that um, Chinese companies are moving up the value chain. But it, it's a relatively modest uh, movement so far in the sense that um, if you take, um, um, you know, for, for example, if you take the, the, the mobile phone brands, of course, uh, many of the foreign brands are finding, they're finding extreme competition from uh, Chinese brands in recent years. But you must, I mean, it's important to remember that the, the, the mobile phone is made up of many different components, and many of those components are coming from other regions. And I mean, it was mentioned, for example, that China's weakening uh, position in relation to, say, um, East Asia. Uh, I'm not so sure about that because, again, many of the, the core components for the mobile phone sector are coming from Taiwan and from uh, Japan and from uh, South Korea. And uh, it is true that in this more recent phase that they may have relocated more of their supplier activity into China, but it doesn't necessarily mean that China has gained control over those um, functions. Uh, I mean, you have Chinese brands, but they're paying enormous royalty fees. And I think um, one of the problems with, you know, the work that has been done by Elise and so on is showing the global picture of global value change is very important. Um, I would say that um, there is more detailed work to be done, though, in terms of actually figuring out which regions end up capturing the value in the end. The fact that, uh, that so much activity is happening in China in supplier networks, you've got the most sophisticated ecosystem of supplier networks in the world in China in the, in the technology sector, that's for sure. But in, in many cases, for example, if you look at the Apple supply chain, 
Uh, Apple will claim to employ something like 3 million people in China. Uh, but many of their suppliers are foreign companies, and they have extreme control over the supply chain. And in fact, you know, they are obviously innovating outside of China, they're marketing outside of China, and they end up then, um, if you like, exploiting the advantages of China in terms of assembling their products there. Mm. So, um, yes, there are changes happening. Uh, Chinese companies are moving further up the, the value chain, but it's a relatively modest progress to date. And I don't think it's something that you know we should be particularly overly concerned about. I think um, many developed regions are still benefiting hugely from their involvement in China. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily reflected in the global um, trade figures. I think we need to look more specifically at how different supply chains are, are functioning um, in the world. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. Um, let's uh, thank you for your intervention this morning. Let's turn back to uh, to our two speakers here in the room, um, and uh, and then also to the audience with questions. But Alicia, perhaps you want to say a word. Why why are you so concerned? Were you concerned about these changes in the in the value uh, value chain that that we've observed? Well. Um from the European perspective, I think it's uh, uh, quite worrisome for us that we are reducing our, reducing our regional integration, because this could be, uh, well, of course, surely a consequence of uh, an imperfect uh, single market. And, and for, for a long time, we thought, okay, we have time to build this single market no consequence attached, but now we're seeing the consequences. Uh, I think is is uh, I mean, what's the optimal degree of integration? I'm not saying that we should only import and export among ourselves, but the reason that we're not even integrating regionally with, with our neighborhood, but basically only with China, to me, asymmetrically is, a, is, a, is of course, a, 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 a reason of concern. Now, there is, however, from China's perspective, two hypotheses. Um, I think, frankly, the idea that this is us, uh, our um, multinationals, that, that basically we are integrating with our multinationals in China is, can't possibly be true. For The numbers speak for themselves. Uh, European FDI into China is about 10% of total FDI, inward FDI, into China. A lot of FDI is actually Chinese-owned FDI which is being re-channeled re through Hong Kong. Um, uh, and then Taiwanese, and then, you know, the, so, so, and total FDI, which was shrink, uh, falling until the very last uh, beginning of this year, I mean, is, is nothing compared to fixed asset investment in China. So we can't claim it's us, number one, okay? It's not our multinationals that are driving. Uh, in the semiconductor industry, uh, actually, even if it's this, U.S. multinationals. Uh, the, pre the presence of European uh, semiconductor industry in China is very limited. So basically, it's not us, okay? So it's not, it's not a mirror of us. And then, we, uh, on the origin of this, there's two reasons. China is too big, your, your point. China is very big. Its, its market is huge. So it, it has this attraction, which is perfectly fine. And uh, one more point that I was made presenting this thing in China, which I think is very valid, is that China's single market was less perfect before. So in other words, 
think about the West, yeah? Now there's a much better connectivity, which makes China a much more integrated single market that helps China become more self-sufficient, which is what I'm showing here, basically, on the import side. So because it has more areas which are integrated and it can do everything from low end to high end, more than before. So this is, this is well taken. And the other key question is, is it all uh, market driven? Is it also policy driven? What is our response to that policy? And this brings us to the usual topics of you know, the usual ones, China manufacturing the nuclear five, et cetera. So because if, it, if the self-reliance is only driven by increasing market integration in China, there will be a tipping point. Because it's already integrated, it won't continue. If it's policy-driven, self-reliance is different because it can go beyond the quote-unquote optimal point for the size of China. So this is a very important question for us to understand. So I'm not saying it's terrible or anything like that. I actually think it's quite good for China so far. So, you know, depends on how you see from which perspective you look at uh, the issue. But if you ask me, is it a problem for Europe? I mean, when I see that our um, exports of intermediate goods are shrinking, and I have one more graph that I didn't show, too many, you're right. The content, the value added of exports, this is your own data as well, European exports value added is stagnant, okay? Mm. It's not increased, it's stagnant. So, so that, in a way, I can't blame, sorry to say, China, China's policies. I have to look at myself. Why is my, the value added of my exports stagnant? That has nothing to do, is it because I can't export or is it because, you know, I could export elsewhere, maybe third markets, or is it, are there policy distortions because China is too big, or is it my own uh, inability to move up the ladder? I mean, I'm saying, to me, a graph that shows that my value added in exports is stagnant and China is increasing, to me, deserves a policy um, analysis. analysis. I don't mean to say it's horrible or anything like that, but I do think it's something we should look right. into. Okay, so let's let's take some questions from uh, from the audience um, remarks, and we have immediately two, three here in front, and then here. Thank you very much for very enlightening presentations and over teleconferencing, partly at least as well. Uh, my name is Wolfgang Papa. I'm with SEPS, uh, formerly in the Commission. Uh, we haven't heard anything about the cost of labor, which was in the past, of course, the main uh, reason why we linked up with China and assembly lines and so on. We see in Asia, and you said Asia is becoming more integrated in a way, a shift away from China, particular to Southeast Asia, but also even to India, I understand, because of the labor cost is one-tenth only of China and now in India, how far is this affecting uh, the whole global chains of value? Thank you. Kurt Geistert, I'm one of the guides in the House of European History. I have a question uh, for the lady from OECD. I was impressed uh, by your figure that uh, Chinese uh, investment in the European Union was in 2017 five times higher than in 2007. Uh, does this rise continue? Just one example, we heard some days ago that a Chinese firm has bought a Steigenberger hotel chain. Thank you. Thank you very much for very 
comprehensive presentation. I have been overwhelmed by data, I must admit, the complexity of issues, trade, investment. Probably for any future meeting, we'd like to have one or two pages, actually. It's, it's very impossible to absorb the two perspectives. Just for me, I'm a little familiar with Greece, Costco, the involvement of China, and then a little with Vietnam. And I'd like to link that with the, the, the way that foreign direct investment has been developed in every country. In Vietnam, uh, I think Vietnam, from what has been integrated in a satisfactory way, but the integration in value chains did not increase the linkage of domestic uh, industry in Vietnam. In Greece, again, foreign direct investment has been a good. Greece has reduced its uh, value change with the community, certainly, but the domestic sector has involved a lot. I'm wondering whether, again, this is a factor which may explain the uh, variation in the European performance, uh, let's say Belgium very well, some other countries behind. How, or this is linked with the issue of FDI versus trade. Eh? How, uh, I'm wondering whether the panel can. So we take perhaps um, another one. You have a mic there. Silver Plaskart, University of Leuven. Thanks to the ladies for really delving into this uh, quite interesting topic. Uh, already the former papers that I have done work were quite interesting. I just uh, stick to one question. When we speak about value added in China or production in China, we do not make the distinction as such between Chinese companies, I mean in terms of property, or foreign investment companies. And already years ago there were data showing that foreign investment companies play a major role in the exports. What about that? I don't ask you to give figures there, it could be awfully difficult. Also the, the, um, the concepts about what is the property of one firm in China is not all that simple, but still. That's an important question, also for policy reasons. What would be your views about that? Uh, I imagine that also, let's say, European companies who have been investing in China, if now they have the possibility of producing their intermediates, they might do it to, to, to supply, for instance, the, the railroad construction in China by Chinese companies, etc. That's my question. Thank you. Um, Mr. Wolf, my question is very different. First of all, um, Alicia, um, I'm not considering myself very stupid, but you gave so much information that I will download what you wrote and study it carefully tonight, and I'm sure everybody here will do that. Uh, but my question, Mr. Wolf, is very different. Um, in my country, Holland, my name is Edouard Pries, I come from there, there is a short discussion with a gr small group of politicians and university people saying... China will certainly be the biggest country and the most economically strong country in the world, inevitably, but it goes too fast right now. And they say, because China is a dictatorship, because it is a cruel one, um, this will, as it goes so fast, be bad for our whole civilization. What can we do? 
And their conclusion of that group up till now, it's an ongoing discussion, they say, we have the choice of letting China do what's happening now, or we try to stop that, and that will mean a short worldwide recession, which, uh, of course, is quite a rough alternative. And they say, as a conclusion, a recession never gives lasting damage. Letting China continue will give us lasting damage. The choice, therefore, is easy, they say. And uh, Mr. Wolf, I, get, I need four more sentences, and then I will ask the panel what they think about it. Short and, sentence. Uh, I will be short, I promise you. The first is they say, not still now, the cheap workers in China, although 10 times more expensive apparently than the Indians, um, are the basis of this excessive uh, export compared to import in China, which is so dangerous because China, with their money, buys everything in the world for the moment, and we will everywhere find that. They say so, that should be stopped. And um, since it is a completely different approach to what we hear, of course, we hear basically we accept what's happening in this meeting, I just want to hear about this actually quite strange thinking. They say replace equal trade with China. Uh, sorry, replace free trade with China with what they call equal trade. And I took that over in my book already because it's a, a concept. I'd like to know the opinion of the panel. Is this idiotic or do they think there is something about it? Thank you very much. Uh, Charles Fade from Pfizer. Um, last week, um, there was a very big milestone in the life sciences industry. So there was a, the US medicines regulator, the FDA, for the first time approved a Chinese-developed uh, um, cancer medicine. Um, to date, um, uh, pharmaceutical R&D has historically always been in US, uh, Europe, and uh, Japan. Um, could anyone comment on the role of intellectual property, intensive industries beyond ICT in the role of China um, up the value chain? I think that's more more than enough questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, perhaps, um, perhaps, Margaret, okay, do you want, want to, start? to start with some of them and then Alice? Uh, there were a lot of questions. Probably I will answer the ones that probably I think that uh, were uh, directed to me. Um, the data on Chinese um, outward investment stock um, referred to global not only to Europe. So China's global overseas investment stock is 5% of the total <laughs> global, and about the same as um, Japan's. And whether it will continue or not, um, probably in uh, some sense, yes, given that uh, Chinese companies uh, can afford and uh, on economic principles will outsource their production. And as we have seen, most of this is resource-based. So resource-seeking investment probably will continue. To what extent will the hotel and restaurant and that type of investment continue? Probably to the extent that now uh, this type of behavior has been reined in by authorities. At least uh, state-owned um, enterprises can no longer just take their money and invest in hotel chains or uh, soccer teams. So um, in, in, to that extent, probably that, that will not continue. Uh, but I mean, uh, if it's resource-seeking, probably it will. Um, whether um, value added was by Chinese or foreign companies, <laughs> we can't tell because uh, it, it, there is no uh, comprehensive data on that. But um, as I illustrated by the Japanese uh, affiliates data, I mean, uh, there is a, a very large scale of localization 
of the Japanese affiliates, both in terms of sourcing of inputs, so um, including in China, also in other Asian countries, they're increasingly sourcing their inputs locally, and also in terms of sales, they're increasingly selling in the local market instead of exporting to Japan or to third countries. So we can, we can see these trends. But I mean, we don't have a figure, and I don't think anybody would have uh, an exact figure how much of the China's uh, value added in intermediate exports is done by uh, foreign-owned um, companies. On uh, intellectual property, uh, we are working on a project now, hopefully, um, well, actually, we have finished. Uh, it will be out probably in a few weeks. We did a survey of all the patenting companies. I mean, uh, not all, but a representative survey of 8,700 patenting companies in uh, China, and we analyzed these data. We looked at what determines their patenting activities, and also uh, we had some questions on IPR. There were some uh, interesting answers. Most of the companies find that IPR protection is not strong enough in China. However, there was a group of firms that considered that um, it's too strong. So probably that comes from the, what they got used to, or what they benefit from. So there are a group of companies This just proves who, who like the weak uh, protection because that's what uh, fits them. And also most of the companies that uh, um, experience the infringement of their intellectual property rights, they don't do anything because they don't believe that uh, there is a, uh, an effective way of recourse. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Alicia. I think I want to go back to this very important idea that uh, it's basically foreign companies. You know, all of this value added still remains in, in foreign companies. And I think this is frankly, I mean, the story of the past, in my opinion. There's been a lot of efforts for China, including indigenous innovation, basically only companies that were uh, registered as, as local uh, could have access to, to funding for innovation, um, let alone the fact that when we say foreign companies, we have to be very careful because there are very few sectors where full ownership, foreign ownership is allowed. So the auto industry, which is huge for us, is just a recent development, and there are very few cases of standalone, uh, very, very few, I think, you know, you could use one hand at most, of standalone uh, uh, foreign uh, companies in that sector. So how can I expect to retain the gains of uh, moving up the ladder if I don't even, if I can even have a standalone uh, company in China? So, so in other words, uh, it is basically a joint venture, and therefore those gains uh, are shared. Um, and again, I cannot benefit as a foreign company from, from indigenous innovation. So in other words, I think it's really wishful thinking to think that, yeah, I mean, it's a different country, but we still run that value chain, which is kind of what I'm hearing. I think that's, that's if at all, the story of the, of the past. Um, and I... I think it's uh, worthwhile because, you know, I, I hear you, uh, Mr. Gris, is, you know, um, I think it's worthwhile to understand that not because we don't like what's happening, the only solution is to stop it, if I may say so. Uh, I think if, if somebody doesn't like what is happening, it has to start with changing what we are doing. I mean, this is the beginning of the answer I would 
try to push in Europe. Because you can't control external factors. I mean, this is true for everything in life, yeah? I mean, uh, I don't think it's enough to... But in other words, I don't. the purpose, at least, of my research is not to say, look, this is a big problem, let's stop it. First of all, I don't think we can, because China's uh, market is just too big. And, and, uh, and I was just saying, we don't control a bit of it, uh, and we should understand that. We should not first be naive enough to think we do, number one. Number two, be na twice as naive to think we can, even force forcefully. I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is, what are we lacking to be competitive? And there's so much to do there that that would keep us busy for, you know, because the rest is, is you know, again, two hypotheses. This is all government-driven and it's all, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, meant to contain the West. We're kind of reversing the story of, of the US uh, with China. First of all, I don't even know whether this is true because a lot is actually based on the fact that this is a humongous market and we can't forget that fact. And the more it gets integrated, the more it will be and the more powerful it will be and you know, the more consequences it will have. So if I give a little bit of credibility to, to the natural process, I think it's unfair to put everything on the, on the policy side, which I'm not saying is not there, let's be frank. <laughs> But by reacting with my own means, I think I can start moving in an equal footing in the sense I can even have the size for me to be considered relevant. Because the first thing to negotiate with a country like China is for you to be relevant. And for you to be relevant, you have to have a single market. So I go back to our own issues first, which are not going to solve all of the problems, but at, I, at least it's, this is something we should control ourselves. So that's, that would be my answer. Okay, I think on this point we could discuss now for a long time. Yeah. I, I certainly, yeah. I certainly agree that um, the EU has a role to play in terms of strengthening our own economic dynamism. I mean, this is certainly, uh, certainly should be high on the agenda, <clears throat> including the single market. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's basically. I, by the way, I don't think the decline in the intra-eurozone and inter-EU trade was primarily related to the single market. I think it was related to the major recession and the shortfall of demand and so on that we've had in significant parts of, of the Eurozone, which then basically meant that firms had to shift their exports else, elsewhere. But anyway, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with you that a lot has to be done to boost, um, boost growth and innovation uh, in Europe, including vis-a-vis uh, -vis the single market. But then I would say, uh, and I think you agree with that, I mean, there's certainly also a meaningful conversation that we need yeah. to have with our Chinese counterparts um, as regards uh, reciprocal uh, market access and so on and so forth. And that discussion is, of course, uh, of course, ongoing. And I think it's a very important, uh, important discussion. But I agree with you, we tend to think um, all the rise of China um, and the rise of China in global trade is sort of just because of the government sector, well, no, that's not true. I mean, it's it's also because China is, just has a very dynamic economy and a major market and very innovative firms. So it's not all down to to market distortions. And I think we should be clear on that and and therefore strengthen our own economy to be able to continue to compete. But anyway, I don't want to keep yeah. us too long. Do you want to just, add one? Just yeah, one please. thing. Even if it were true, this is my really key right. point. Imagine it were all market distortions. Still, by by strengthening our market and our our 
single market as a, as a, as a unity, sure. you are first giving more opportunities to basically uh, peri peripheral countries not to engage in that game that we all know about. And second, you have more negotiation power. So even if it were all um, policy-driven. So what I'm saying is that in both cases, I think we're better off by first strengthening. And then uh, it's hard to engage in a conversation if you're very weak. That, that, that's, that's basically the point. All right. Um, I think that's, that's all the time we have for this morning. Thank you for joining. And sorry for some of the technical problems we've had. Um, next time, hopefully, it will work better. Sorry for that again. And thank you for joining.